0: Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don DeMills. Well, Don, a very special guest, a very special treat for us today. We had an opportunity to talk to Dr. Donald Savoy, a professor uh, at the University uh, de Moncton and an expert on regional economic development.
1: This is a conversation um, that I've long wanted to have with uh, Donal. Um I've uh, had a lot of uh, respect for him over many years. I followed his, uh, his writing, read a number of his books. Like, you know, he's an icon when it comes to regional economic development in our region. And, um, I, you know, I just, I, it was a bit selfish, I think, for me to have him as a guest because I wanted to talk to him for so long. So I, I, I'm hoping that people enjoy our conversation that we have with him.
0: Yeah, he's got a new book out. I mean, it's that's something you can say about Donald Savoy every six months or so, but his new book is a biography of John Bragg, and we had a good conversation about that book and about Bragg, but also a broader discussion about the history of economic development in this region, and that's a topic that Donald knows a lot about and has very strong opinions about, and that comes across in this interview.
1: Well, indeed, I, I would consider him uh, the historian when it comes to economic development in our region, and, and his uh, book on uh, looking for bootstraps is a must-read, I would say, for people interested in growing the economy in our region. And in fact, I would go a little further and suggest that you know um, this should be mandatory reading, either in late high school or certainly as part of university education for people in this region. It really sets the context and provides some of the reasons why uh, we've trailed the rest of the country in economic development for a long time, including some national policies that many people do not realize harm this region from the early days of confederation. And without understanding that, it's difficult to look at solutions for our region and and come up with good solutions. So uh, that is a book that I would highly recommend to anybody who wants to understand why it is we are where we are in economic terms in this region.
0: Yeah, it's a good, it's a good review of the landscape. As you said, going all the way back to pre-Confederation, and it does lay out in very strong terms, some of the areas where Savoy thinks that Canada has taken a really central sort of Ontario, Quebec focus uh, to, in some, in many cases, to the detriment of Atlanta, Canada. So I agree with you. I'm not sure why that book is not more widely read, although it did get good, fairly good um, coverage. But uh, as you said, it'd be great if every high school student or at least a large share had an opportunity to read this. It's not a dense or deep, uh, difficult book to read. It's a fairly readable book, I found.
1: Very readable and very interesting. Like I like I learned a ton myself, and I you know I'm I'm somebody who's had an active interest in economic development all my career, and uh, I found out things that I really didn't know or understand, and it, it really uh, filled in some gaps for me personally. So, really good book, and and by the way, um, you know um, he might be the most prolific author in Atlantic Canada. He's written. He told us. More than 50 books, and he's got two new ones coming out next year. It's unbelievable how many books he has written. Yeah, like, he, I don't think people understand how prolific he's been as a writer.
0: Yeah, and he handwrites writes his manuscripts even to this yes. day. <laughs> so that's, a, that's an interesting uh, uh, attribute. Uh, what did you think about the conversation around John Bragg? I, I'm particularly interested in the fact that he doesn't shy away from his his appreciation for these large tycoons, for Bragg, for Irving, for McCain. He's written books uh, on Arthur Irving and, and um, on Harrison McCain and now John Bragg. And, you know, sometimes we tiptoe a little bit around those big entrepreneurs because they're, you know, very successful and very wealthy. But he is unapologetic. He thinks we need those industrialists. And, in fact, he'd like to see a lot more.
1: Well, I'm very glad that he wrote that book. You know that I've been uh, uh, pushing the Brags for a few years uh, to have a book written about John and what he's done. I'm a big fan of his accomplishments. He's done things that nobody else has done. You know, we had him on our podcast. It was a very interesting and rare interview with an amazing entrepreneur. So I was very happy for him to write the book. I have yet to read it. It's on my Christmas list. I will read it for sure. Um, And I think it's important that we tell the stories of people like John Bragg and the fact that he's done Harrison McCain and uh, Arthur Irving is fantastic. Uh, But there are many other stories that need to be told um, of uh, people who have done amazing things in a region that is hard to do. Um, amazing things in. So we need to celebrate and learn from those uh, experiences. And the only way you can do that is by going deep and, 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 and doing a biography on them. So I'm very anxious to read that book. I read his book on Arthur Irving, by the way, uh, which I thought was uh, uh, insightful as well. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty private guy as well, <laughs> despite running a you know, well-known company. Uh, and I, I learned a ton from reading that book. I haven't read the Harrison uh, McCain one yet, but it will go on my list as well.
0: Yeah. They're not very flashy. These big, uh, these very successful entrepreneurs, they tend to keep a low profile, which is, uh, which is another, I think, attribute of the region, but Bragg in particular is interesting because he's what Savoie calls Pac-Man or a serial entrepreneur. In other words, he, he, um, he, invested and started in a bunch of businesses that were disparate from each other started out with blueberries went into the TV and telecommunications then went into environmental uh, uh, and energy businesses so it's uh, that's a little different even I think than uh, than the Irving and Arthur Irving uh, or McCain in that he's 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 not focused on one sector he's gone into many many different sectors and I think that at- attribute of John Bragg is particularly interesting
1: yeah they also own a bit of real estate by the way that uh nobody really knows about i was talking to his son lee not that long ago and they've actually got a p- nice parcel of land right smack in the middle of the peninsula that uh will someday it's worth a lot now it's gonna be worth a lot more uh, when they develop it at, at some point in the future so it's a it's a story that not many people really know about so um, a good conversation uh, kind of adds to what we uh, found out f- with our conversation directly with John, but uh, like he's just a, you know, he's a legend, honestly, for this region. And what, he's th- what he did in the telecommunication industry was uh, world beating and that uh, and all happened out of Atlantic Canada, which is uh, amazing.
0: Absolutely. he Brought uh, a lot of competition to that sector here in Atlantic Canada and I think the whole uh, uh, telecommunications sector is better for it. So without any further ado, here is uh, uh, Don and my conversation uh, with Donald Savoie about John Bragg and about regional economic development. Welcome, Donald Savoie, to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: So we're really glad you're here. Uh, Don and I are big fans of your work over the years. Um, I would say most of what you do falls into two themes. One is your passion for regional economic development here in the Maritimes, but you also write a lot and have a lot of books on the subject of good governance, good politics. Uh, You've written nationally on that subject. You have a national reputation on that front. We're going to start um, focusing mostly today on regional economic development, but I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about your career Uh, uh, long and storied career, but maybe just summarize for the listeners uh, who Donald Savoy is.
2: Well, I was born about 40 miles north of Moncton. My father was an entrepreneur. Um, My brother and I got into the business. Uh, After a while, my father turned to my brother and said, I think we're going to have to send Donald to school because I don't think he's going to cut it in the construction business. (laughs) So my father took over the business and they sent me off to school and I've been studying ever since.
0: So, just for a set of context, you've written over forty books. What, what is there? A, what's the exact number of books you've written in, uh, in during your well, career?
2: Well, it's. Uh, I think it's up to fifty-three.
0: Fifty-three <laughs> books. Okay, good. <laughs> That's impressive. So, as I said, we want to start talking to you today about regional economic development in the Maritimes. Uh, you've written multiple books on the subject. Uh, one of your recent ones, Looking for Bootstraps, should be mandatory reading for those attending post-secondary education. Uh, it, it, that book, we believe, Don and I believe, is, is, should be widely distributed in the region. It provides an important historical perspective on the region. Uh, in your book, you refer to national policies that have hurt our economic prospects in the region. Can you give us a couple of examples of those national policies?
2: Actually, I can give you a, a number of examples. Uh, let's start, you know, with Confederation itself. Uh, Nova Scotia was asked twice if they agreed with Confederation. Both times, Nova Scotia said no. New Brunswick had major problems, and in hindsight, the Premier of New Brunswick, uh, Smith, uh, saw through it and said, "You know, we can't sign this deal. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt the province." And so, when you create a federation, um, and I want to stress the point, we're the only federation. In the world that doesn't have an upper house that speaks on behalf of the regions, we have a number, We have a number, uh, We have a senate that's there for a sober second thought. It's a phrase that was coined by Sir John McDonald. I don't think he was sober at the end of his life. Uh, <laughs> and, and, but, but it 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 it's neglected the regional factor, and it's not there for us. So if you look to the United States, if you look to Australia, if you look to Germany, if you look if you look to Russia. Uh, they all have an upper house that speaks on behalf of the regions. We don't. So let's start in 1867. That was a raw deal. We were smacked uh, into line. Then go to national policy. The national policy, and no, you know, uh, Casey Irving put it extremely well. He said national policy, what it means is that Ontario and Quebec can just nudge their products down to the maritime provinces, whereas we have to haul ours up. And it makes the point. Now, I just, I'm just i just going to throw a figure at you. National policy, and this is important. It's subsidized per capita in Ontario, $15 a year subsidy to Ontario. We don't talk about that anymore. It costs Nova Scotia per capita every year, $11 every year. Nova Scotia, uh, so, sorry, in Saskatchewan, uh, $28. So national policy clearly favored Ontario and Quebec at the expense of the maritime and Western Canada. But keep going. The national war effort, the Second World War, uh, they built ships in Toronto. And the British and the Americans came up and said, it doesn't make sense. You should build ships in Halifax or in St. John uh, because it was closer to the theater of war. In fact, building the ships uh, in Toronto was ill-conceived because. Uh, a couple of times they were frozen out. They had to be repaired in Halifax. And so go on, uh, 32 crown corporations were established during the Second World War. Not one, not one was established in the maritime provinces. They were all established in Ontario and Quebec. And it, it laid the foundation for a manufacturing sector that has boomed. Um, so you ask me for examples, there's countless examples. Um, you know, more recently in Nova Scotia, there was a possibility of building a light armored vehicle in Nova Scotia. The federal government said no, because we don't, with on moral issues. A couple of years later, London, Ontario had the same contract. There was no problem with moral issues. So it's, it's really been a double standard. And so if I sound like a, an angry maritimer, well, I am.
1: Yeah, you made, you made some excellent points uh, on, on those national policies, uh, in, including, I believe, the Chenecto Canal uh, that was, uh, you know, at once uh, thought to cross the Nova Scotia Isthmus to connect the Bay of Fundy with uh, um, the, uh, the waters of the uh, St. Lawrence, I guess. And um, that would have been a great economic venture for this region. Um, but it never happened, even despite the promises that it would, I think as part of the Confederation, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Also in your book, Donal, you you spent a lot of time on the attitudinal barriers that seem to be holding back economic development in Atlantic Canada, especially with regard to resource development. Um, These are the same barriers that were identified, as you know, in the Ivany Report in Nova Scotia. Uh, what needs to be done, in your in your view, to change those attitudinal barriers? Well, you know, Don,
2: attitudes are built over generations. Uh, we have to go back a hundred and so years. I mean, maritimers were in the losing end of, of a number of issues. And so it, it became part of our culture. And what needs to be done? I think we could start with regulation. I was taken aback. Um, I know it was a bit controversial. I wrote some op-ed back then. When we said no to uh, shale gas, I couldn't quite figure out that's the case both Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. We said no. Well, we, we uh, take transfer payments happily with both hands. They're generated by fossil fuel. So if we want to be consistent, we should have said, no, we don't want shale gas, but for moral issues, we're not gonna take transfer payments. But we weren't prepared to do that. So it's a question of attitude. I see it even more, you know, uh, even more recently. John Bragg was an entrepreneur, uh, first class. He built the most modern blueberry plant um, in the world in Tracady in Northern New Brunswick. It's incredible. It's got the largest freezer in the world. It takes 15 days to start from point 0.0 to when it's frozen. It's amazing. Now. Up in northern New Brunswick, we say, well, we we don't, we're not sure we want that because, the, you know, it's because of the environment. It might hurt our water, our rivers, our stream, and so on. Of course, that's nonsense. But we 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 are so, I think there's a bias against development, and we've seen it. And the reason, Don, is because I think we have to go back in history and see what events and what issues shape the attitudes of maritimers. We need to turn we need to turn it around. Now, I think we are turning it around. I happen to think that for the past 20-some years, especially a turning point for me was the free trade agreement. When we, when we stopped having to haul our products up to Ontario and Quebec and we could compete on a level playing ground, which the free trade agreement brought us, I think it's starting to change. And the attitude is starting to change. I see entrepreneurs in the Moncton region, and David, you must see it as well, it's incredible what they're doing. They're looking to new markets in Asia, in Europe, in the United States. That, but, you know, it takes generations. It took several generations to bring us down. It'll take a few to bring us up. So the attitude is changing, but it was built up over the years, and we need to change it.
1: If I could just follow up on that just quickly, just a couple of things that I've noticed, uh, and it has to do with our population, which is something that I, I've been following for a long time, as you probably know. You know, we had a pretty stagnant population for a long time in Atlantic Canada. It wasn't growing, or at least it wasn't growing at the pace of the rest of the country. We didn't have very many immigrants coming here. We didn't have our share of immigrants coming here. Now that we do, in places, you know, certainly Moncton's a good example, where the diversity of the population is increasing daily. Um, uh, and population growth, especially growth from, you know, outside the region, brings new innovation, creativity, you know, entrepreneurial drive, uh, new ideas. I, I think that that's going to contribute a lot to changing attitudes in this region, don't you?
2: Yes, absolutely. It's a good point, Don. And I agree. Look, I go to Halifax every so often. It's just when you drive into Halifax, you feel the energy. It's becoming a mini Boston. And why? It's because we've been able, we've opened up and we have new Canadians arriving in Halifax and Moncton, and they bring, they're bringing a sense of energy and they don't have the same attitudes because they weren't generation after generation. They suffered back home, but certainly not here by national policy. So they bring a can-do attitude. We're, we're seeing it in terms of population, what's happening between Moncton and Halifax in the corridor is absolutely amazing. And so, and I think we go back to free trade agreement, give us a chance to compete and we will compete.
0: Donald, I wanted to ask you about the role of the federal government we see in the UK an effort to level up, which is a national policy, to try and see uh, more poor and underdeveloped regions of the United Kingdom, uh, particularly England, uh, raise up to the level seen in the London area. You have been called the father of a COA, You were instrumental into the into the creation of the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency's, Agency back in the eighties. What do you see as the role of the federal government to support? economic development uh, in the Maritimes today and moving forward.
2: Well, the father of Aqua, I like to tell the story, um, never met the mother, uh, but it, <laughs> it, it, it all began with the then Prime Minister Brian Mulroney called and said, uh, we need to rethink regional development. Could you talk to Atlantic Canadians, come back with a report on what an agency would look like? And I did that. I met with all the premiers, business leaders and so on and I did produce a report. What happened after, and you know, 80% of my recommendations were embraced, that's great. But what happened immediate, immediately after, there was a new agency set up for Western Canada, one for Quebec, one for Northern Ontario, one for Southern Ontario. We now have a new agency that was created a few months ago for British Columbia. We have an agency for uh, the North. So every postal code, every postal code, even the ones on Bay Street, now I have access to regional development agency. And so if, if, that me, if regional development policy means it can help downtown Toronto, it means nothing, it's empty. So the federal government should sit back, go back to the drawing board and say, what do we mean by regional development policy? I don't think Halifax needs much help, frankly. I think Halifax is doing just as well as Winnipeg, as Hamilton, Uh, as Montreal, as Quebec City. So Halifax is doing very well. I'm not sure that Moncton needs a lot of help, but I can tell you Northern New Brunswick, Cape Breton, rural Nova Scotia, they need a helping hand of some kind. And so what, perhaps what we should do now is instead of having a regional development agency with a head office in Moncton, with a major office in Halifax, maybe we can rethink this thing and say, perhaps we should look at rural Canada. If there's, if there's a problem, it's there. How do we bring people into rural Canada? How do we bring, you know, I have a friend in Northern New Brunswick who could create 150 jobs tomorrow, not related to me. Um, they, they produce all kinds of wood products. They have about 400 or 500 employees. Now he could create more jobs, He tells me I can create the jobs. I don't have the people. And so the immigration policy that Ottawa has in place that over the past several years, and I give them credit for this, they were able to move people to the Moncton area and Halifax area we now have the Minister of Immigration from Nova Scotia. It's the first time in a heck of a long time. I think the last the last one was Alan J. McKechen, uh back in the 1960s. So we, the minister for, for, is now from Nova Scotia. He is from rural Nova Scotia. And so maybe he can bring that dimension. So what does the federal government need to do? I think it needs to rethink its regional policy, not for political reasons, but for policy reasons. And, and instead of helping hand for Halifax and Moncton, Look at regions that need it.
0: So, would you move the ACOA head office to Bathurst or some, something like that as a as a gesture or? Kay you private? know, one of,
2: the rec- one of the recommendations that was not approved by the by, by the when I submitted in eighty six eighty seven, I suggested Aqua should have a staff of no more than one hundred. And out of that one hundred, you should have private sector people. Borrow them, beg them, get them to serve for two years get 20% of aqua should be private sector to come in. It'd Be good for them, it'd be good for aqua, and so on. But if you go beyond 100, you're going to create a bureaucracy. Sadly, I think that's where we are. We have, we have an agency of 700 people, uh, downtown Moncton, uh, downtown Halifax. It's a massive bureaucracy. Uh, there are no private sector people there, that I can tell. And, and so, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, what would we do? I think it's time to rethink not just where the head office is, but the role of the agencies.
0: So I think that makes a lot of sense to me, Donald. I I think you're right about the decoupling of Halifax, Moncton, and say Fredericton, to a lesser extent, St. John. Certainly Charlottetown is booming. uh, But this idea of recalibrating regional economic development in, in that way, I think makes a lot of sense. I think Don wants to ask you a question uh, concerning maybe a little more specificity around a co and its budget. Don, uh, yeah,
1: Don. thanks. Uh, I recently wrote a column, Donnell, on, on economic development agencies in Atlantic Canada. Don't know if you saw it or not. But uh... yes, I do read you, Don, and I read. Oh, no, thanks. We, you know, I question the sheer number of agencies involved in economic development in our region. I, I estimated roughly that we spend more than a billion dollars in economic development at the various levels of. Uh, government and in communities. Uh, We really have kind of a low return associated with those efforts based on economic growth. Most of the agencies lack tangible performance metrics. Uh, So I'm a bit critical, obviously, but, you know, just asking some hard questions. ACOA's budget this year is more than $600 million, I believe. What, in your opinion, is ACOA doing right to grow the economy in this region? And what could it be doing better?
2: Don, I don't want to be cynical here because I'm not the cynical type, but a chap not too long ago in Moncton told me, you know, Aqua's main contribution, uh, it's got 300 head office jobs in Moncton, well-paying, great pension plans and so on. That's the main contribution. Well, frankly, that's not good enough. That's not what economic development should be about. And yes, I did read you, Don, and I, I couldn't agree more. And I think a billion is probably on the low end. It's a lot more than that. In Moncton, we have regional development agencies coming out of our ears. We have one from Moncton, we have one for Dieppe, we have one for Review, we have ACOWA, we have the provincial government, and on it goes. And and there's a lack of coordination. And so, and, you know, when they get up in the morning, what do they do? Um, and and so is there a need to streamline? Absolutely. Now. I hold up a bit of hope. I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail and said that post-pandemic, there's going to be some tough questions asked because governments cannot keep spending the way that they're spending now. There's no question about that. So there'll be some tough questions. Maybe some of those questions will be asked in terms of the agencies, in terms of the level of bureaucracy we have to promote economic development, both at the federal and provincial. There's no question that we have too many.
0: I wanted to change topics and talk to you a little bit about your new book, uh, Book on John Bragg. I, but before I ask you about that book, why did you decide to start profiling regional entrepreneurs? A lot of your books are quite dense and difficult to read. I've read over two dozen of your books, and some of the more academic works are very, very challenging, whereas these, these new entre- books about entrepreneurs, are, are they're just a breeze. They're just lovely to read. Uh, very, very interesting subject matter, well-read. Why did you start decide to start profiling these regional entrepreneurs, uh, John Bragg, uh, uh, Arthur Irving, and Harrison McCain?
2: Well, funny you would say that. Uh, I have an assistant, and she, I still write longhand. And uh, my assistant, she was working, uh, it wasn't a John Bragg, I think it was the Harrison McCain book. She came in, she said, "Ooh, this book is different from every, anything that you've written before. This one is really interesting.
0: <laughs>
2: so so there you go. I, uh, You know, the John Bragg neighbors, friends, family, they read the John Bragg book, they get it. I know uh, some of my books are pretty, uh, I have one coming out in March, that pretty dense. Uh, but it all started with uh, Harrison McCain. All three, I considered them friends. Harrison, I contacted him at, uh, during the Meech Lake Sort of debacle, and I said, "Harrison, we Maritimers need to do something. Why don't I put pen to paper and I get a group of ten or twelve people? You guys debate it, uh, and sign it, and we make a statement." And Harrison, yeah, well, Harrison said, "Yeah, let's do it." And it was a fascinating kind of exercise because Robert Stanfield was on it, and and Harrison McCain, and they had a major disagreement. Harrison said, "We need an, uh, an effective elected Senate." Bob Stanfield was not for it. And so we had to come off at some kind of solve. And Harrison said, well, I'll back off as long as we commit to studying it. So that was it. So that friendship with Harrison started there and we became good friends. And uh, after he passed away, Anne, his daughter said, Donald, would you, what about writing a book about Harrison McCain, about my father? And I did, and I enjoyed it. Uh, Arthur and Sandra. Well, Arthur is a good friend, so is Sandra. I was on a couple of boards with Sandra Irving. I got to know Arthur, and we've been uh, we've been going to places. I'm a big Red Sox fan. We go to Fenway Park every summer, him and I. Um, and Sandra was pushing me to write a book about Arthur and Casey, and Arthur was not keen on it. I can tell you, he said, "I'm not sure I want that," and he resisted until the end. He said, "Okay, let's do it." Uh, John Bragg, I've known him for twenty-five years. I happen to like John Bragg a great deal. Um, he's the solid of the earth type of guy. He's an entrepreneur, honest as a day is long, uh, deeply committed to his region. Deeply committed to his region. It's it's really about the region. It's really really about rural Nova Scotia. Um, he's very genuine. Uh, so he he read he read the Irving book, and we had a good chat. And I think. He, said, you know, it'd be nice if you take a look at what I did. Um, So I agreed. He redid his father's house, Collingwood, into a conference center. It's amazing. In the basement, he's got all his papers, starting with the first check that he wrote in 1964 or something. He gave me the keys, go in it, look at whatever you want. Uh, Totally transparent. Uh, So I had a good time. had good chats with him. Uh, I got to understand what, what makes him tick. And so... Uh, That's point number one. Point number two, I really believe that our region, we're poised to do something good. I believe that. I do think, however, that the only way we're going to do something really good is through the entrepreneur, is through our local people, the local chap, the local guy or gal that wants to start and launch a business and grow like Harrison McCain did, like, like Casey Irving did, like John Bragg does. And what I find quite encouraging, I see a number of young John Braggs floating around And so I think the future looks promising. And for me,
1: for a region to look promising, it's got to be the entrepreneur. Donnell, your latest book, The Rural Entrepreneur, is the story about John Bragg. I'm really pleased that you wrote this book. I've I've been nagging John for years to have a book written about him because I thought his story, I knew his story. I thought his story was so interesting and needed to be told. Um, You know, I, I helped get a book written by Sir Graham Day for the same purpose. You know, we need to have those stories told. There's lots of interesting stories uh, that need to be told. It's, it's really the kind of a, a entrepreneur that every
2: region should have. Um, it's, it's, it's his deep commitment to the region. He didn't want a book written uh, about him for a long, long time because the guy really doesn't have much of an ego. He, he likes to think himself as a farmer from Collingwood, Nova Scotia. He is a farmer, but by the t- by the, he's a pretty bright f- farmer. And tell you that. And uh, look, he, it's not called Bragg Frozen Food; it's Oxford Frozen Food. It's not Bragg Communications; it's Eastlink. It's it's really about growing a business. That's what turns him on. That's to see the wheels turn, to see something built, to see his community, you know, coming alive. That's what matters to John Bragg, and that's the kind of entrepreneur that. Every region should have.
0: So it's kind of interesting that he's his name Bragg, but he doesn't like to brag. I'm yes. sorry, I'm not very good at humor. Okay, uh, Donald, well, I wanted good, to ask you <laughs> what 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 I think is very interesting uh, to me and to the listeners is this idea of Bragg as serial entrepreneur. So how do you go from um, blueberry farmer? to serial entrepreneur, and I think you use the term Pac-Man to, to sort of insinuate just sort of gobbling up and picking up new businesses along the way, most of them not related to the original business. So you talk about lumber and telecommunications and cable TV and then even newer environmental services, things like that. So can you tell us a little bit about how Bragg, what, what, what was in there, what, what's, what, what, it, what was in the culture or the history or what drove him? To, be, to go from just a simple sort of entrepreneur blueberry farmer to this, uh, to this multifaceted, uh, multi-industry um, uh, industrial tycoon?
2: Okay, John Bragg at a very early age, maybe when he was 13, 14 years old, decided he would become an entrepreneur. Uh, he started a business when he was 15 years old, hiring fellow students to pick blueberries and selling them. Uh, He went to Mount A, was offered a full-time job, turned it down, went to law school. After a few months, he quit. And I said to John, why did you quit law school? He said, geez, I sat there and I looked around and everybody wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a businessman. So he quit law school, started a business back home. And he told George Cooper, who was in law school with him, uh, George said, you're leaving law school? He said, yeah, I'm going to go pick blueberries. George Cooper thought he was nuts. He said, you're leaving law school to pick blueberries. And from day one, and I have to tell you, people may not know this, but it was a tough go. The first year he was in business, there was, was a drought. The, there was somebody that came by and uh, said to John, you should look at a cable license in Amherst, Nova Scotia. So even when he was having some pretty serious financial problems, he took a gamble. He took a risk. Uh, people in Moncton, I recall, people in Moncton said, well, he got the license because he's a liberal. The reason he got a license, it was there was only one application in Amherst. That was John Bragg. That's why he got the license. So he grew that business. It was a tough go at first because he had to beg and borrow programs. Um, once he got going, another license popped up in Port Elgin, in New Brunswick. He, he decided to buy it. Then he went to Truro. Word got around that if you wanted out the cable business, John Bragg was there and what John Bragg did, and people confirmed this to me time and time again, what John Bragg did was he, al- he always offered top dollar. He never tried to take advantage of any situation. Word got around. And so when, they wanted, when people wanted to sell their cable license, they went to see John Bragg. So he became the Pac-Man. So now he's, he's got cable in Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, parts in every part of Canada. He's there he's in Bermuda and so if, if you if you I've asked John Bragg John Bragg will tell you look I am convinced because people have asked him why don't you sell he would sell at a pretty handsome price by the way as we all know but John Bragg said look I think my managers and I can manage this business from Collingwood from am- from Halifax as well as anybody in the rest of Canada I can compete, my managers are as good, as competent as managers might be in Toronto, Calgary. So why not do it here? Why sell out? And he said, I don't want my grandchildren to tell me, well, you sold out, because he he wants to show the world Collingwood, Oxford, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, they can do it here. Uh, Then he saw some opportunities nearby. Um, The windmill, he will tell you, there's not great money to be made uh, and when, but it came by and he thought, no, that'd be a good investment because A, it's in Nova Scotia, B, is good for the environment. So he went in. Um, uh, whenever, whenever an opportunity comes by, he will take a cold, detached look at it and said, yeah, it's worth the risk. Can we do it here in the Maritimes as well as anybody else around the world? If the answer is yes, he's in.
0: So in a way he he almost sounds like an early venture capitalist, so, although not the same because he's actually running the business. But it based on what you just said, it, it's like he's he's sort of looking at different opportunities and seeing if he can make it work and make a profit at it. And even though it's completely different than the previous business he was in, it, you know, if he gets a sense he can do something there, he'll invest. Yeah.
2: Well, I yeah, you're right, David. I think he looks at every situation as an entrepreneur. That he carries it every day. I will look at at, at a situation uh, as an academic, try to make sense out of it. John will look at things and said, "Look, can we do something with this? Can we make it work? Can we make it work as any as best as anywhere else?" And if the answer is yes, and does it fit with what I want to do, he's in.
1: Atlantic Canada has had uh, far fewer publicly held companies relative to the size of its our economy here. Um, On the Insights podcast, we have been discussing this issue and wondering if we need more publicly held companies to provide growth capital, but also the management and strategy discipline that comes with being a publicly traded company. Bragg always kept his companies privately held. What are your thoughts on this?
2: Don, that's a great question. And I have two answers. One is Harrison McCain. I put the question to Harrison. His answer was fascinating. Here's what he said. He said, well, I didn't need to um, go to the stock market to get equity, because I got a grant. I got a DRE grant. So the government provided me free equity. And I think the Harrison explanation applies to a number of businesses. When DRI was in the region, it provided a lot of equity. They didn't have to sell shares. They didn't have to sell part of, you know, part of their business to get a cash infusion. They got it you know, from the government. And so that explains it in part. Second, John Bragg uh, would agree with you, Don, totally. In fact, John Bragg in his businesses has assembled teams uh, to buy stocks. And so they compete. And what John Bragg finds um, very helpful is that by studying a firm, uh, by studying a company, by getting access to their data and so on, you can figure out what makes them tick. You can figure out why they are successful. And so, for John Bragg, beg and borrowing what large private sector uh, firms do, and you can have access to their annual report, sure, you know, shareholder report, and so on, it gives you an ele- uh, it gives you a leg up. So, to answer your question, yeah, we should have more. But I think we've been spoiled by government grants in a way. Harrison McCain didn't need to go to the stock; he didn't need to sell equity. John Bragg didn't need to sell equity. The Sobeys did not need to sell equity. Irving did not need to sell equity. So there we are.
1: Yeah, I'm actually doing a column on this uh, topic that will be out in a week or so. So um, that's helpful. Thank you very much. Uh, Also in the Bragg biography, you state that urban centers are the engine of economic growth, which I believe, and rural communities are the fuel. Can you elaborate on that relationship? Happy to, Don. Rural communities are not just the fuel they're the food
2: and fuel. We 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 um, produce seventy percent of what we eat in this country. Rural Canada produces the food. Rural Canada produces the fuel. You know, windmills, even windmills, um, energy plants—they're all in rural Canada, all of them. I happen to think there's an urban bias in this country—a strong urban bias. Let me explain. Large universities are in are in, in urban centers. Governments are all in urban centers. There's no, there's no head office of any government in rural Canada. Um, businesses, the media, all national, all voices in the media are from urban centers. So there's an inherent bias and we saw it in the last election. You know, there's a split in this country. We talk about Quebec National unity, and so on. I think there's an urban rural split. And I think what we need to think about is to, have, is to equip governments with rural lenses. Um, look, John Bragg told me the story when he built a plant in Collingwood. The regulation that was imposed on him were regulations that would fit nicely in Halifax, not in a rural setting. But try as he might to convince government officials in Halifax, look, the water system, um, the fire system that you may have, that may apply in Halifax cannot work in rural, uh, in Oxford or in Collingwood, didn't matter. They applied the regulations because they apply in the province, province-wide. Well, the regulations make sense in Halifax, they don't in rural, uh, in rural parts of Nova Scotia. So why not have rural lenses to say, well, you know, we, we may be able to accommodate rural businesses because they have different circumstances. So this urban bias is very strong, it's prevalent. Um, and I happen to think that the challenge going forward is dealing with it, not having a regional development
1: agency in every city in this country. Donnell, uh, you and I have spent our careers trying to figure out why Atlantic Canada trails the rest of the country in terms of economic development. Um, You know, I I came to the conclusion that it was actually the the split uh, between rural and urban that was so different here that uh, held back our economy And and then I later kind of figured out that one of the problems is that we didn't urbanize as quick as the rest of the region because our population stagnated and didn't grow for decades. Uh, As you know, I've been advocating for regional economic hubs that would help stabilize rural uh, communities across Atlantic Canada, realizing that, you know, Most growth and population happens in rural settings, urban settings, even small ones like Bathurst, as an example. You know, they're the most likely to attract and retain uh, people from outside to grow the economy. Uh, What is your opinion of using a regional economic hub strategy as a means of more evenly distributing economic prosperity across the region?
2: Well, it may it may have a lot of merit, but I think you're right, Don. You know, in New Brunswick, 50% of our population is rural. We're just crossing the threshold now between urban and rural. Ontario did it in 1917, uh, and Ontario is 80% urban. And so, yeah, we lag behind, and, and it's clearly uh, urban areas have become the dynamic elements of the economy. My point is that that's fine. Let's not forget that the fisheries, agriculture is rural based yep. and uh, you won't grow much in Bathurst or in Camelton, but you will grow something on the peninsula. Um, and so I think we have to find a way to blend um, our need for food and fuel with uh, the growth that we are going to see, we have seen, and we are going to continue to see in urban areas. So the growth pole concept, yeah, it goes back to Francois Perou in the nineteen sixties when he started it, he said, you know, it became it became in fashion, everybody grabbed onto it, including Canada. I think what happened is that being being politicians didn't have the patience or the time to let it work out. So after four or five years, well this isn't this is not working. <laughs> well, actually, um, it takes more than four or five years for growth poll to to get really anchored. In fact, if you look at Halifax and Moncton, maybe that concept that was started in 68, 69, the early years of Dree was growthful. Maybe it explains in part why Halifax and Moncton is growing. So part of the problem is that politicians don't have the patience to see it through. There's an election four years down the road. That's what matters. If I were a politician, that's what would matter. But when you're looking at policy uh, instruments, give it time.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. I, one of the challenges in New Brunswick is to decide what that growth pole is. So, Camelton, Bathurst, and Miramichi all would claim to be a potential growth urban growth pole for the, for the Northeast. And so, just letting them all kind of develop ad hoc, I think, serves maybe political interest more. But I just wanted to pin you down a little bit, Donald, on rural economic development. You talked about attracting population earlier. You talked about food and fuel. Would you double down on agriculture development in rural areas and, and uh, energy projects, natural resources and population attraction, what would you do to, or what would you recommend we do to uh, stimulate rural uh, economic development, even as we look to, you know, these urban hubs as service centers?
2: Well, I give Ottawa, the federal government, full marks uh, on being able to tailor its immigration policy to help urban centers outside of Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver. So several years ago, the federal government came to a conclusion that they had to alter their immigration policy to help uh, urban centers outside of the major urban centers. It's worked. Go to Charlottetown, go to Halifax, you know, go to Moncton. We have a lot of new Canadians. It's worked. I think the time has come for the federal government to look at the uh, immigration policy and say, how can we tailor this policy to help rural Canada? How can we get this guy in Saint Quentin, New Brunswick, who can create 150 jobs tomorrow? How do we tailor that, our policy, to help that guy create 150 jobs? That's what's needed. If we could do it, if we could move it from Toronto to Moncton and Halifax through immigration policy to revise it, add elements of it that would favor Halifax and Moncton, can we not do the same thing to favor parts of rural Canada where, 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 where there are jobs? There are not enough people. I repeat the point I said a while ago. We now have a minister of immigration from Nova Scotia, rural Nova Scotia. Uh, first time since the 1960s. And the last uh, immigration you know, minister from the, from this region was another Nova Scotian. Uh, and he made, you know, he had an impact. Hopefully, uh, we will see some changes that will uh, tailor uh,
1: immigration policy to look at rural, uh, rural, rural Maritimes a bit more. Donald, uh, Donald uh, David, and I are obviously big fans of entrepreneurship. Um, it's been the focus of most economic development agencies. In your book, uh, Looking for Bootstraps, you ask whether or not uh, entrepreneurs are born or you know can be developed. Uh, but in the bio- recent biography of John Bragg, you discuss some lessons that uh, aspiring uh, entrepreneurs can learn from John Bragg. What are the biggest lessons for aspiring uh, entre- entrepreneurs from the book? I reproduced a speech that John Bragg
2: gave in the annex of one of my chapters where he talks about it, and the question you've asked it's a question that people have asked for since jupiter um are, are entrepreneurs born are they raised are they formed are they are they brought into the world um I think it's a combination of both and John Bragg is a good example his father was an entrepreneur his father was into it was you know, was in the lumber business, he saw it firsthand. And John Bragg was nurtured to be an entrepreneur. Uh, whether he was born to be an entrepreneur, one will never know, but one does know that he was nurtured. And so what are the, what are the qualities that, that John Bragg brings to it, brings to entrepreneurship? I think one of the things that entrepreneurs in the maritime should borrow from John Bragg is that don't have a reverse gear, put it forward, keep going. Don't look to your feet to plan your next move, look to the horizon, look to the opportunities if you look at your feet, if John Bragg had looked at his feet, rather than the horizon in 1969 John Bragg would not be where he is now and so there's a number of lessons learned, and I hope that entrepreneurs from the Maritime Promise, and I have to say, and I'm delighted to say this that are seeing I'm, I am seeing a new crop of entrepreneurs, very encouraging I think if they can beg and borrow lessons from John Bragg, who would all be better off, including
0: them donald you mentioned joseph schumpeter i I just wanted to ask you because that really resonated with me that part of your book and this idea on innovation but also on creative destruction this idea that you can't have innovation without you know companies failing right companies need and you need to have a number of entrepreneurs that will try stuff and, and, and invariably many of them will fail and schumpeter called this uh creative destruction but a strong and thriving economy will have lots of entrepreneurial failure In Atlantic Canada, we have a number of sectors of the economy that aren't particularly productive, and I don't know if that's a function of the size or the function of the makeup of the sector, not enough large productive firms or exporters that are facing international competition or whatever, but I guess the general question for you is, do you see enough of this creative destruction in Atlantic Canada?
2: Um, No. I don't think any region has enough of it, but I do think that we have some of it. And look at John Bragg, look at Harrison McCain, look at the Irvings. John Bragg had a problem. The world had a problem. We had wild blueberries. We didn't know how to pick them. Picking them by hand and selling them in the street corner didn't work. So John Bragg said, we've got to figure a way to harvest these, these blueberries. He invented the harvesting machine in Oxford. It wasn't invented in New York. It wasn't invented in Europe. They use it in Europe now. They use it all over the place, but it was invented in Oxford. And so the innovation, he he didn't have a choice. Either to grow that business, he needed to sink, break through, to push back the frontiers of knowledge, to say, we got to do something different. That's what it's about. And John Bragg will tell you, as he, he, as, he had, as he has told me many times, innovation does not belong only to Toronto or Montreal. It is here we need to encourage it. And so, when we have, you know, when when Ottawa launches a, a program to in, to encourage sort of new thinking, they will call it smart cities. They should call it smart communities. It's not, it's not just about Toronto or Montreal, Ottawa. We do innovation down here. We need to recognize it and to encourage it. There's a point that Don Mills raised a while ago that I'd like to come back to it. He said about the agencies, uh, They're there. There's plenty of them. They spend a lot of money. We don't know how well that they're doing. Don is absolutely right. And and John Bragg will say, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Now, that's an old saying, but Bragg believes by it. John delegates power to his managers. Incredible. Gives them all kinds of room, but he measures them. And he says, if I can't measure my managers, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So i got to figure a way to know at the end of the year, my managers have performed, if my businesses have performed. So he attaches a great deal of importance on measuring performance, on measuring impact. And I think the agencies that Don Mills was talking about, I think there's an important lessons learned that 600 people working at AquaWall need to come up with something to measure
1: their uh, their impact. If they can't measure it, they can't manage it. Uh, just a couple of final questions. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I understand that the, your your book has been sold out. The first run on, uh, has been sold out, so we're going to recommend that to others. But obviously, they have to be in the stores for them to buy it. So uh, I'm sure that's coming soon. Uh, so what's next? Uh, you mentioned that you're you're uh, going to have a yet another book. What what uh, what book is? Uh, what's the topic of that book? Well,
2: in in March, I got a book coming out. Um, it looks at four countries. It looks at the state of democracy in four countries: France, England, U.S., and Canada. And it, it it's prime ministers and presidents how they've diagnosed what ails government and what kind of remedy that they've come up with. Uh, that's coming up. But look, I'm putting the fin- I'm putting the final final touches on a on a manuscript. That I think will be interesting. My assistant tells me, "Oh, this one is interesting." <laughs> and what I what what I what, what I'm doing, and I'm I'm really enjoying it a great deal, is I'm making the case that Canada is a country of victims. Unlike every other country in the world, we are a country of victims. And I start with ourselves, Acadians. We were victims. Maritimers are victims. Quebecers see themselves as victims. Western Canadians, you know, see themselves as victims. Ontario. Sees itself uh, as a victim. Fair share, you know, fair share federalism, the loyalist influx, and so on. Um, And so then I go on and say, Are we really victims? And I answer, Acadians are no longer victims. I'm not a victim. Do I look like a victim? Don't think so. Maritimers, are we victims? No, we're no longer victims. The free trade agreement, what we're seeing in Halifax and Moncton, we're no longer victims. Quebecers, are they victims? I wouldn't buy that for half a second. And Quebecers, you know, by playing the victim card, they got shipbuilding that was gonna to go to Halifax and St. John into Quebec. They got the CF eighteen maintenance contract that should have gone to Winnipeg, they got it in Montreal. So Quebec, don't give me the story that you're a victim. Western Canada, I think they're a victim to national policies. I do I do recognize that. But in economic terms, they're not victims. Ontario, do you really think that any Canadian is gonna buy The card that you are victims? No, Ontario, you're not victims. So we build this country as a country of victims. And there's no other country in the world. There's no other country in the world that has apologized for past wrongs like Canada has. We've apologized to Chinese Canadians, Japanese Canadians, Italian Canadians, and the list goes on. No other country. No other country. And so that explains, I think, what makes Canada tick. So I'm having fun with that book. That's what I'm working on.
1: And just a final question, are you more or less optimistic about the region's future now than you might have been 20 or 30 years ago, now?
2: Don, there is no question that I'm 10 times more optimistic. I see the light. I really do. I see a class of entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs. I see them pursuing new markets in Asia, in the United States, in the eastern seaboard. I see a number of young John Braggs, women, young women, young men. And yes, I am much more. I think we are, the, we are, and we're seeing population growth, as you pointed out, Don, in Halifax, in Moncton. You drive into Halifax, as I repeat, it's like a mini Boston. So something is going on in this region. It's very encouraging. And yes, you know, 1970s, 1980s were tough years for us in America. I think we are
1: seeing light. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legier and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.